Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm writing a book. I'm happy to share with you that along with the able assistance of Charlene Chang, who is prone to making 300 plus edits to each chapter, I'm sorry, improvements to each chapter, I am finishing up the manuscript for my second book. It's called How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. And it really started out as a theoretical construct about the country being engaged in a civil war. And then after we got started in the fall, the, uh, people stormed the U.S. Capitol carrying Confederate flags trying to deny democracy. So it became much less theoretical. And so there's two parts of the book. The first part is how the Civil War never ended, starting with the assassination of Lincoln five days after the supposed surrender of, uh, of the Civil War. It's amazing to me how we all know Lincoln died, but not why and when. And then the second part is about how we win and where we're winning, looking at the case studies of the place where we've had real success over the past decade, Georgia, Arizona, Virginia, Harris County, Texas, San Diego. And so that will be published by New Press, who did my prior book, uh, Brown is the New White. It'll be out in 2022, pending supply chain issues that are affecting the publishing industry and the shipping backlogs. And it's been a labor of love and a lot of labor, but also very gratifying as we've tried to connect with leaders who've gone before, really kind of in some ways almost like commune with writers who've written about prior periods, and also honor the work of those who are winning the war and can chart a course for the next several years from where we actually go. So stay tuned for that in 2022. And we'll be taking December to finalize the manuscript. And so with that on our plate, plus the holiday season, this will be our last podcast of the year. And we'll be back in January, right when the 2022 election season heats up. It's already heating up with Stacey Abrams' announcement uh, last week that she's running for governor of Georgia again. And then a few weeks ago, Beto O'Rourke announced he's running for governor of Texas as well. And so... In 2022 and beyond, one of the most important and least understood forces in the country, in the country's politics in particular, is the Latino community. And a big part of the reason the community is poorly understood is the poor quality of coverage by journalists who neither come from nor understand the community. And so in today's podcast, we're going to try to rectify that a bit by talking with one of the leading political reporters in the country and a person who has lived and reported on the Latino experience her entire life. And so for that conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and extremely meticulous book editor, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Do you want to introduce our guest? Hi, Steve. I'm doing well. And thank you for describing my red pen that scrawls across your every That's word right. and page. Microsoft as, um, Word counts the number of changes <laughs> in edits, literally from 300. Thank you for calling it meticulous and what did you say? To improve, calling them improvements rather than annoying. <laughs> but yeah, it's been quite a journey. It's just been an honor. And I think I can see the finish line. Mark my words. But we're, I'm very excited to just be at this final stage of bringing the book all together and, and soon bringing it to the people. Um, so you're asking how I'm doing. I, I still can't wrap my head around the fact that it's December. <laughs> I just need another month before I'm ready for it to be December. But, you know, scrambling, trying to figure out holiday plans and shopping and all of that. And I'm also just trying to stay as calm and zen as possible about the Omicron variant mm. and trying to not let my mind race in multiple directions about, 
you know, worries and fears and just saying, okay, you know, uh, the experts are trying to figure it out and our family still being careful. I think we kind of gotten really used to uh, ultimately a pretty, you know, isolated, if you want to say lifestyle, like we don't really do much except maybe go grocery shopping and see one or two family friends that are maybe once every other weekend, but we don't really go to restaurants still. We don't really go to any, any larger gatherings. I'm hoping for the best on that front. And I am also very excited about Stacia's announcement. Again, she's running for governor of Georgia next year and excited about Beto's announcement. And today I'm really excited and looking forward to talking to our special guest, Suzanne Gamboa. So to let our listeners know a little bit about Suzanne, Suzanne Gamboa is a senior writer for NBCNews.com. She covers Latinos in America and how this demographic group of nearly 61 million people, which makes up about 18% of the U.S. population, is reshaping this country. Prior to her role at NBC, Suzanne worked in the Washington, D.C. Bureau of the Associated Press, where she covered politics, immigration, and U.S.-Mexico border issues. She also helped build the race and ethnicity beat at the Associated Press. Welcome, Suzanne, and I'm so glad you're here with us today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you making the time and um, look forward to getting into this. As it's, uh, I, I spend much of my time scrolling through political reporters opining about, well, lots of things they don't know about, but then most particularly about Latinos, <laughs> but people who are not Latino and have not become that community. It, feel free to be uh, talking extensively about it. So we're happy to talk to somebody who has at least been Latino, if not actually <laughs> studied and communicated and, and reported on the community. So thank you again for joining us. Yeah, we talk a lot in Democracy in Colors coverage, and it's, uh, Steve talked about this in his first book, Brown is the New White, about the importance of cultural competency in, in politics, uh, but also every sector, right? That so often the people who are in charge of making decisions or whose analysis we are getting are not from those communities, don't have the lens, or they don't haven't even tried to attempt to try to get some insight if they are not don't have the lived experience. In your case, you do have the lived experience. And just so you know, Steve and I actually both worked in journalism, uh, let's say a while ago. <laughs> Back when they were pre-internet. <laughs> and and we have both talked about the fact that in our experience, we were one of the few journalists of color for sure in those newsrooms. And I I think you may know a little bit about that. So I just wanted to start off by asking you, first of all, how did you decide to become a journalist? What was that decision like, that journey like? And how do you describe this race and ethnicity beat? How did you come to create that? Well, uh, gosh, deciding to become a journalist is such a hard thing for me to answer because it was something I wanted to do since I can remember. And I really don't ever remember saying I, I, this is not something I don't want to do mm. uh, unless until I was in college and thinking about changing a major. But it was just sort of ingrained. I think part of it is this voice I have uh, for so long. I was told I have this voice when even when I was young and when I started out, I was going to go into broadcast and um, mm. very early on, uh, I, a professor encouraged me to switch. But it was as as I grew to really understand what I was getting into, my my theory or my idea for sticking with it or for, for being a journalist was that people with information have a an advantage mm -hmm. and everybody should have access to that information. So as a journalist, I'm sort of the keeper of the tap. 
you know, I can open up that tap for people who need information to make their lives better. So this this kind of originated for something as small as knowing what scholarships to apply for when I was in high school mm. and knowing they were out there. And I thought, gosh, if I'd have known that, if I'd have known that about college, I could have gone there or I could have gotten that money or whatever. And starting to realize how much that kind of information is not available to many people that just don't have, didn't subscribe to newspapers because they couldn't afford them or whatever reason. It wasn't in their lived experience. They didn't have people before them that went to college. I did have sisters that went to college. Uh, my parents didn't, but um, you know, just because I don't know, for whatever reason, it just information wasn't as readily available as it is. And so that, that just became a realization of mine that that was the way to, that was what journalism was about for me when I got into it. So um, as far as race and ethnicity beat, you know, it's funny that we talk about Latino coverage because, and, and how long I've covered, et cetera. The, the, the reality is I never, I didn't go into journalism thinking I'm going to cover the Latino community as I know a lot of Latinos do now, which is, you know, I, I don't begrudge them that at all. And, you know, I think it's great. Part of that was because at, at the time I, it was so different, right? And the whole idea that you would even have just one beat dedicated to one community was not really in the thinking at the time. It was more about covering neighborhoods, et cetera. But and I remember ascribing to the idea, even when I was a younger editor at a local newspaper, the local newspaper in Austin, um, saying, you know, we really shouldn't be just doing a Latino beat or Mexican-American beat because it was Texas. We need to be covering it in everything. You know, we and, and I kind of even shied away from being sort of pigeonholed that way mm-hmm. because I, I was like, I want to be a political reporter. I shouldn't just have to cover Hispanics, I want to cover Hispanics. And and it's funny because when I started in the AP, which was my first job out of college, one of the first big stories I did was about uh, Mexicans who fought in the Alamo on the Texas side and why they did it. And it wasn't because I was covering that community. It was, as you, Charlene, mentioned, lived experience. It's like, well, you guys are writing all these stories, but you're not mentioning these people. I'm going right. to mention these folks. And because so that's they're not even aware that they should know about that. Right. Right. right now, I my and and I don't want to hog the time on this, but my 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 thinking has evolved over the years, and I do believe that we do need these beats because it doesn't get done otherwise. Well, actually, and, let's uh, probe that for a second. Well, just for our listeners, also because I'm writing a book on this in terms of the the Alamo and the Civil War and all this dynamic. So, just as we talked about up top, just for the listeners. And I'm going to ask a little bit about, you know, George Bush going forward, too. It's fascinating that he noted this in some of his different ads. So Texas used to be part of Mexico historically. And then Texas Mm -hmm. wanted to continue practicing slavery, which Mexico did not like. So the United States waged this bloody and violent war, the Mexican-American War, to take the land that is now Texas from Mexico for Texas. And then the Alamo was, was, I mean, it's a little bit simplistic because there's also a piece around there's a period in there and they had Texas was a... Uh, uh, actual the Republic of Texas, but basically it was the whites within Texas fighting against um, Mexicans, and it's gotten glorified through culture. And remember the Alamo, et cetera. But if you understand what the fight was actually about, uh, it's important to grasp that as well. So it is fascinating that there would be you know Mexicans on the Texas side of that. So I just think one of the get that background for the for our listeners. But I'm interested, when I was in college, there was a lot of this struggle around 
uh, in terms of the, this having a particular beat, right? Should you have you know black studies or should it just be American studies, right? <laughs> and so, at one level, even if I look at largely popular culture, it's like I look at like you know what Shonda Rhimes has been able to do with her. You know, she, she doesn't have a show about people of color in a hospital. She has Grey's Anatomy, and it just happens to be all people of color. But most of what happens out there in terms of media and coverage and journalism is largely white driven or white controlled, I guess. And so I'm going to focus a little bit more about the evolution of your thinking on that front, about why you've settled on there. It is it is important to have that kind of a beat. You know, I, I think because I just saw the gaps and I think it, it, it became very pronounced when I got to Washington, D.C. Um, and I became sort of herded into this you cover Hispanics only and you cover immigration and your stories are not as important, you know, you're, and you're an advocate because you're Hispanic and you're covering Hispanics. And I just, you know, you can run the gamut of the things that we as journalists of color have, have run into I, You know, I, I, I know most people who aren't in journalism don't run into this, but they may run into it in their own professions or in their own workplaces. You know, you sort of get pigeonholed, not sort of, you get pigeonholed and, um, you know, a part of it, too, I had to learn more, too, myself about being a political reporter. I had covered, you know, the state house in Texas some, but that, you know, just the whole idea of covering Washington is it's a, a, another animal in itself because everything is politics. And once sort of the light bulb went off in my head that if I could make my stories relevant to the political things that were going on, I, you know, the, the most important story I remember doing this for where I was like, okay, I, there, there's something in, in AP where you try to get your story on the national wire in the past. I was a reg, what they called a regional reporter and my stories didn't automatically go on the national wire. I had to get them on there and they had to be worthy of it. And um, they called it the A wire. And so to do that, I had this story about how after the marches in 2006, 2007, that followed the um, Sensenbrenner bill that would have made it a crime to help uh, immigrants. Um, there were these those huge marches in cities all over the country where hundreds of thousands of people have turned out and, right. um, in each big city. And after that, what followed was this spike in um, uh, immigration uh, naturalization petitions and people wanting to become citizens. At the same time, uh, uh, immigration fees were dropping. And, you know, I, I got all kinds of sources telling me, you know, that they were just being flooded and things were being uh, uh, not responded to people's citizenship applications were being held up anyway. So I wanted to write this story and I wasn't getting anyone's attention with it. And I finally thought, well, you know what, I'm going to write the, how important this is because here's coming this election and, and it was Obama's election and mm. Obama's trying to appeal to this multicultural uh, base. And here's how important this is to that base. And I mm. managed to put like one or two paragraphs in it and it just elevated that story automatically onto mm. the, national wire. So there is an animal that, you know, you have to learn about in or know about to, to really succeed in Washington reporting. But, you know, once I did that, you know, that certainly helped a lot, but still it's, you still, um, you know, I became a reporter after covering immigration um, that just did race and ethnicity under um, Sonia Ross, the only African-American editor that was in the DC Bureau of mm -hmm. AP print side at the time. And Newt Gingrich had said something about African-Americans that had to do with the accepting paychecks rather than welfare checks. And this was during that election. And, you know, my editor right away said, this is a story. We got to do it. You do it. 
And she had to go convince the desk that we were going to write this story. This is where race and politics, the nexus happens, you know, where they connect, right? And, you know, I got yelled at by the um, white reporter on the campaign for doing this story and that she was getting yelled at by them. And why was I doing this story? And, you know, mm-hmm. all craziness broke out, but we did the story and my, I had the backing of Sonia and Sonia just backed me all the way. And it was important. This was not about Latinos. This was about African-Americans, but it, it was another, it's sort of that uh, story just sort of shows you that it, it continued, you know, even after that's the kind of thing that you always deal with uh, in that. Uh, so, so it's those kinds of stories that, you know, happened over time that cemented my feeling that we need to cover that there need to be people on that, that understand the community that know why it's important that certain things happen. That's why you have these beats. That's why you have these concentrations. And I, I don't, you know, look, there are white people out there that speak Spanish and they have lived in the community and they do fine. But in a, in a, in an industry where there are so few of us that are in the political class in the political journalism journalists, they're increasing, they're increasing, but not, you know, profoundly, it, it's important to have people of color who look like the people they're covering. It, it right. makes a difference. Um, right. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Newt Gingrich. This is kind of apropos of nothing other than the funny story and racism that I once was on a flight where I sit next to Callista Gingrich, his wife. And well, the first funny part is that she was too cheap to pay for the Wi-Fi for the whole trip. She only paid for it in increments. And so when the Wi-Fi ran out, then she was turned to me and started talking to me. And then she's like, and this was the time when Van Jones was doing this show with Newt. And she said something about, oh, do you know Van Jones? I'm sure Van's probably the only black person she knows. I mean, everybody knows, do you know Van Jones? And I do know Van Jones. Oh, right? oh so, gosh, right? so, so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> but I, I'm interested in terms of the, both in terms of the, within the journalistic realm, but also within the political space, right? In terms of dealing with, uh, you know, we've been, you, you've dealt with multiple administrations now. In terms of how much priority have you felt has been, uh, and attention has been paid? to Latino community in general, to immigration issues? Have you seen that fluctuate over the years? Like what's been your experience around how high a priority is community in those issues? This is such a good topic, and I'm glad you asked this question. I could go on and on, and I won't, but I'm going to try to, um, try to, you know, abbreviate a few things, but, and hit, hit everything <laughs> at the same time. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's been a continuing thing and it hasn't gotten there yet. I think uh, people, I, if they see the African-American community, you know, at all, for the bit that they see of that, it's it's pretty much a black and white world to a lot of people. And that mm-hmm. part of that is experience where they live. That's they had a black and white community and that was it. If a, they had a black community at all. Latinos only have grown since, you know, the 19, mid 90s to the 2000s from being a Southwest population to being everywhere. I mean, we've been everywhere for years, but not mm-hmm. in the numbers that we are now. And, um, you know, largely Mexican-American and Puerto Rican to now, you know, and, and uh, you know, eventually also, I guess, if you include Florida, Cuban-American to, you know, Venezuela and Colombia and Salvador and everything else that you have uh, these days, Bolivian. So that has a lot to do with it. But I, I do think there still is sort of this this lens that people only see, OK, it's either and, and I mean, black and black and white racially, but also black and white as as um 
you know, as we use it, you know, literally in terms of no grays, you know, and, and which is what happens, right, when people talk about Latinos and, oh, gee, why are they voting this way and this way, right? No grays. Um, people tend to see too much uh, the world that way too much. But, but in terms of Latinos, when I arrived in Washington in 2000, um, as a uh, uh, regional correspondent covering uh, the Texas Congressional delegation. I went eventually, like after, not too long after I got there to meet with the, the office, the guy who's in charge of the office, Larry Gonzalez of the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. Mm-hmm. And I just have to say, I, in our first phone call, when I met him, it was almost like he fell off his chair just to have a reporter there in the room with him oh, to wow. come seek him out, right? Because, That's you know, I had, out. Right. I mean, I had been reporting in Texas on Latinos and Latino vote. So and covered Maleo and um, not not a lot, but, you know, I would and and did some had talked to Maleo. And then when I went to Washington, it just was natural, natural for me to follow up with them. And and, you know, it just they were just surprised. And especially from something as prominent as the AP to give it that kind of Mm. attention. Um, it happened to me when I was in Austin and I was a city reporter. I was assigned to cover the opening of this plaza, uh, which was being called a Zócalo. A Zócalo is what you see in Mexico, where it's the plaza with the gazebo and people gather there and they sit and the old man is there with a book or whatever, feeding the pigeons, whatever. So they were building one in East Austin at the time. And um, I was asked to just go write this. And I was told it was quote unquote, a clip job, which means you'd go just go get the old stories and pull stuff from the old stories and put together or something. You know, I chose not to do that. I went out to East Austin and I met with people out there and I, I called up um, this Mexican American architect who was helping build the plaza, design it. it. It turned out that he was the father of a young man who had uh, died in a, in, a, in a homicide, in a very horrible homicide in the city that had been in the headlines and that was going to be missed, that this man whose son had died this horrible death was now in part in, in doing this thing for the community and where his son died, you know, which was an important story in itself. And I recall when I went out there, the question was, who are you? We've never had anyone from the newspaper come out here. Hmm. So it's sort of like it's it, I think that's kind of what you kind what you saw, at least I saw in the beginning with covering uh, Latinos. I think it's definitely now Latinos are a little more um, trendy or a little more hmm. the thing to talk about or mm-hmm. they're big enough that people are paying attention. But it's also, it's, it's also important to sort of look back at the legal collection of, of, of cases where whether or not it's mostly Mexican-Americans, because that's where, what the cases revolved around before, but now it's become Hispanics, Latinos, you know, whether or not they're white, and how in some cases they've been called white, in other cases they're not white, you know, how politics enters into that decision. If they want to get naturalization, well, at the time when the law said you had to be white to, to become a U.S. citizen and be naturalized, well, you weren't white. But if they need to count you for something, then you are white. Or, you know, it just, uh, the census didn't, I think in, they they considered us white in one mm-hmm. census, but in, or in some senses, uh, they didn't have a Mexican-American category. They put us right. with other races after that. Then they put us with other races. The OMB had a directive that used to not consider consider us white, but then that got changed in 97. And so there is a Hispanic-Latino category now. With the, I'm sorry, OMB is Office of Management and Budget, which um, they they sort of create the definition for races that all the federal agencies right. follow. 
Right. What But you mentioned that in terms of well, being in Texas and covering Texas, there's been a lot of attention in the media about much of the uh, debriefs from the 2020 election and looking at like South Texas and then the changed margins there, et cetera. And then we're heading into another election next year, the you know, gubernatorial race, Beto O'Rourke's taken on the incumbent Greg Abbott. And so I'm curious, what's your sense of what Latinos care about in terms of issues um, and whether those are, are and are not being spoken to? And I think there was some uh, surprise in the political space around with Trump being so aggressively hostile to you know, Mexico, as well as so aggressively anti-immigrant, and yet doing better than expected among some Latino voters. So in terms of looking at the population, the issues that they have cared about, what have you found um, in general and then in, in Texas in particular? Yeah, I think when you, I, I'm so glad you categorized the surprise that way, because I think that was the surprise in terms of how, you know, what the policy uh, was of the Trump administration, the white supremacy, empathy that, uh, if you want to say it that way, um, that ran through the administration and that there were Latinos who still responded to that anyway. That, that I think is what is where you should, we should talk about surprise as opposed to any kind of surprise that, that Latinos, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, anyone's votes Republican, because that's been going on for a, such a long time. You know, and it's in, it is interesting that because if you recall when Trump ran the first time, he did create a panel of Latinos who ended up quitting when he doubled down on talking about how uh, immigrants were criminals in Arizona. And there were a number of people that just many Texas GOP Latinos who just said, that's it. I, I can't accept that because, you know, I have immigrant roots or, you know, I know people with immigrant roots or whatever. So I, you know, I, I think there's still a lot to get to the bottom of, of why people vote the way they do. But I, I think there is a need to always go back to those of us who have covering, been covering this for years, know that there has been poll after poll that always showed either education or jobs as some of the top issues for Latinos. Immigration becomes a big issue, but it goes in and out. It's sort of like the coverage of Latinos who has always been in and out with immig as immigration has gotten bigger and then it dies down and then it get, becomes big again. But immigration has gone in and out as an issue. I, I think it's always been up there, but it it's... Immigration is such a broad way to put it. If, if you as a, a political party, the, the political parties say, are you for immigration? Well, you know, they're, or they're anti-immigrant or it, it has to be broken down or even border security. It's such a broad term. It's like there are Latinos who live on the border. And when I worked in El Paso as the El Paso correspondent and they wanted security for their homes that were being broken into by gangs or, or you know, people from across in Mexico that would come across and break into their house and, and leave. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, to, Latinos do want security, but, and, and not all, all Latinos believe this way, but they're, they're, they're divided up. They, some of them work in, in border patrol, some of them work in immigration. And so those issues that appeal to them, if, if jobs can appeal to them and, and they think their jobs are endangered, well then, you know, jobs is going to be their number one issue. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not like, it's, it's like everyone else in, in the country where in this region of West Virginia, mining is going to be the issue, you know, in this region of, you know, especially as Latinos spread across the country, if, if their job depends on the Keystone pipeline being built, as many might in, 
you know, up in the upper states, you know, um, or other pipelines uh, with the or, or the oil fields in the Dakotas, then that's going to be the issue that's of importance to them because they have to put food on the table. Not everyone will make that first. They might have that feel like, well, no, you know, immigration is also important, but they also want their kids to be able to get good educations. And, you know, they hear if, if they're reached out to and told their kids have a, a better chance of getting a good education, if they get a voucher and they'll get to go to whatever school they want to, and, and no one's reaching out to them to tell them, well, here's some of the drawback of that, then the number one issue for them is going to be school vouchers, you right. know, and getting right. the, the best education they can. Suzanne, I'm so glad to have you on, first of all, because I don't think we hear enough this type of explanation and reminder of how diverse the group we call Latinos is, right? So I am privileged to have a lot of friends who identify as being Latino, Latinx, and they're always you know, talking about how frustrating it is that the group gets described as this monolith. And uh, it's always good to just remember that it is a very diverse group. My understanding of that group hail from at least like 28 different places around the world in terms of their ancestry or their, you know, grandparents or parents. And even within each group, there are a wide range of political views and um, propensities towards what's important to them. So just thanks for the way you were able to give us insight into, you know, what is what drives people is like their, also their jobs and where they live and what's at stake for each individual family. Um, back in September, you co-wrote a piece for NBC Latino about which parts of the country are experiencing rapid growth in within their Latino population segment. And I know that this is a big part of your beat. I wanted to just ask you what, in your view, are some of the key factors driving population changes in the Latino population right now? This is so interesting, Charlene. And, and you know, I, I think of so many things uh, as you are talking. And it's just so interesting. I You know, I, I, one thing I failed to mention is that, you know, immigration as an issue has also been influenced by, you know, the the change in the Latino population from the 90s to now what is uh, that what are new, uh, 2021 right so in the mid 90s and early 2000s there a lot of the population was we, we saw this great wave of Latino immigration mm-hmm. I, I think by the mid 2000s I think I'm trying to remember what year it was where Pew came out with a study that said immigration from Mexico was basically at net zero. Mm-hmm. Um, this was during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. um, and it and it sure it it may have had some to do with enforcement, but it was also about demographics in Mexico, and you know, and that a number of people had come, and now they were establishing their families and their children were growing up here. So now, you know, you have this new population of children of immigrants and children of children of immigrants because you know the whole issue of immigration reform has been unresolved for so long, yeah. and and that. That has made a, you know, that affects like who we're looking at in 2021. I, I remember when my editor and I were talking about how we're going to, how we write, a, what we should do for Hispanic Heritage Month, what, what we should cover. And I, you know, I'm, I kind of have a little bit of, of a, of a penchant for numbers or, or I like numbers anyway, I like data. And I unfortunately am not a data journalist. I don't know how to manipulate it all and pull it all down from census. But I, I you know, it was important for me to emphasize, look, we, we have these great census numbers, but we have to remember that what they're showing is not, there's all, all these new Latinos from uh, other countries as they were before, but now we're looking at a whole nother generation that has 
we've had the immigrant generation of the 90s and 2000s. And now we're looking at these DACA kids that have gone on to college and bought homes and gotten married and become citizens, not all of them, but some of them, um, some who became citizens and joined the military. And then they had children and they've moved elsewhere and they're, they're children of immigrants and they're running for office or they are, you know, doctors and chefs and what we found them. Um, when we, North Dakota was a big um, story for us. We felt like, you know, that's a really great way to show that, you know, you can find Latinos anywhere. And that was where I, I believe North Dakota led. I have to go back and look at the statistics, but it was the top, had the, the highest increase. And I mean, it doesn't have the largest number, but the increase was greatest. And um, it, we we really wanted to find someone working in the oil fields. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I was told by some of the people that many of the foremen on the in the oil fields and the pipelines are Mexican Americans who have been there, you know, who who've who either came as immigrants and, and mm-hmm. or they were born there. And we tried to get get those folks. It, it was it's a little harder when in the pandemic and you can't actually travel. So uh we did our best, but um the folks that I wanted to talk to were they were immigrants and they were shy about uh, connecting me with people. So that sort of fell apart. And so we, we eventually found this young um, scientist, which was also really terrific and um, uh, from Bolivia. But, you know, it just, it, it's really important. She, she was, she was an immigrant, she had come to study, but she really told a good story in terms of trying to find the next job so that she could stay in the country. She had married an American, they were going to have a child. And it was just going to continue this story of Latino growth. And it's kind of funny because I'm I'm a multi-generational Latina. I'm Mexican-American. My parents were born here in the U.S. They're from San Antonio. They're from the West Side. They lived through the civil rights movement. They lived through um, redlining and segregation uh, and all of that. My grandparents, at least one of them I know was born in the U.S. and then two are from Mexico. But one that we believed was always a legal resident and never a citizen I went and looked at census uh, information and said, and and it listed her as a citizen when she crossed into the U.S. So I don't know if she was born here and they went back to Mexico or something. But anyway, that's so you know we have this these years of here being in the in the country, and then there was like sort of this space after my generation. I think of not a lot of of Mexican or Latino migration. You know, it was just steady, and then it just jumped in the 90s and 2000s. So it's, I feel like what I'm seeing happening now is sort of what I am, you know, I'm this product of others who were already in the US and and another generation, and they experienced discrimination and, and this country trying to figure itself out. And, and then I became this generation where, where affirmative action came in and I was supposed to be part of this generation that sort of fixed it from the inside, so to speak. Right. And now we're sort of reliving this whole new cycle. I, yeah. I feel. Like. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating the growth in the suburbs because for so long, because of the way the country's history has unfolded with a lot of, you know, white flight from cities to suburbs for a long time, suburbs was a code for white. And even in the last election, right, Trump was saying, suburban women, why don't you support me? But the suburbs are now much more diverse. And so it's not actually the same kind of code. And you've actually seen this somewhere in Atlanta, like the surrounding areas around or in Georgia around the, around Atlanta. They think, oh, those are formed the suburban areas. But those suburban areas are quite diverse now. I wanted to pivot, uh, um, uh, so they were getting 
towards the end of time, I wanted to ask you about another story you had written around the El Paso shooting um, back in 2019 at, at the Walmart there. So, you know, one of the things I found in putting together my book is that I talk about how there's been a consistent Confederate battle plan since the end of the Civil War. There's been consistent core components. Part of it's been uh, ruthlessly rewriting laws to suppress democracy, which we're seeing happen right now in these all these different states. But another part has been what I call silently sanctioning terrorism. And all, even the whole point of the Ku Klux Klan back in the 1800s was really to not just randomly, but to really suppress the community in that regard. And so it's often been tied to fears of the growth of a community of color. And, and one of the things that didn't get a lot of attention, you were one of the few people who talk about this uh, when, the, when that attack happened and then some of the others as well the past few years, was the connection between the national climate and then this incredible horrific act of you know, violence and murder. And so what did you find around the El Paso shooting about the impact and the influence of the national climate on that um, shooter? And then how much do you feel the rest of the news media and the kind of the pundit world understood that or, or made that connection? You know, it's it's kind of hard to see it when you're in the midst of covering something so tragic and 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 terrible. And and I had been, like I said, an El Paso correspondent, so I I understood El Paso pretty well and and how it worked as a binational city. And I so when I went out there to cover it, it I felt this sense of sorrow that I hadn't felt to the extent I felt it when I've covered other um, disasters and, and tragedies. But um, so. It was interesting that I think that a lot of the people that I talked to, wherever, whatever side of politics or whatever they fell on, they felt that they were, this whole thing was a product of the rhetoric, that the rhetoric of the president and of state officials, including the governor um, of Texas and other um, high ranking officials was part of it, had, had contributed to this. And, you know, they, they didn't put all the blame on, on them. They, you know, they, they certainly recognize that people act on their own, but they, they, they understood what kind of environment this happened in. And, you know, they, they have heard the rhetoric before of, of, uh, that immigrants are criminals or people coming from Mexico are criminals. And, and they, they've always, there's always been this feeling on the border in a lot of border cities of the lack of understanding of how interconnected these communities are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell people all the time when, when you go into Juarez, it's like walking across the street. Yes, you have, particularly when you're going from the U S into Mexico, it's, it's much simpler, right? But yes, you have to go through their, you know, their um, little station and their police station that's at the bridge. And when you come back, you have to show your passport and everything, but it really, in terms of walking distance or, or whatever, it's just like walking across the street. They're, they're connected. Um, and you go over this little bridge and then you're in uh, Juarez and people do it all the time. They go, across the bridge to, from El Paso to Juarez or from Texas to Mexico along other parts of the border to go get their hair done because they have a great stylist they love in Juarez and who's cheaper or they get their dental work done because they can't afford it in Texas or they just like the dentist over there and and or their cousin is over there and is a dentist and you know families are interconnected and so the people in El Paso really understood that and and would say things like we're not criminals. Why do they think we're criminals? And, 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 you know, we're, we're, you know, what affects us here affects Juarez. And because there were people that were killed that were from Mexico and from Juarez, um, which is across the border from El Paso. 
um, I ran across a couple women who were cleaning, they, they had cleaning jobs and they, they often come by the bus to come clean the houses in El Paso. And they stopped by the, um, the, what was then the sort of interim memorial that sort of came up impromptu that people started creating with all the flowers and everything just to pay their respects. And they said, you know, because this happened to them, it happened to us too. And we need to pay respects to, you know, the people that we know, the, the El Pasoans, because they're right. us. You know? right. Right. Um, and, I, you know, and a lot of people don't recognize, like they represented what happens. A lot of people don't know that there are people in Mexico that have passes to come daily to do work, right. and buy goods and whatever in the U.S. Yeah. yeah but, I mean, it is that saying, right, that, you know, it's sometimes said jokingly, but not at all, really, that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Right. right. That, that really is that reality. And so just for our listeners, in case the, uh, uh, people don't, aren't familiar with the details of what happened. So this is 2019, a 21-year-old white man in Dallas, Texas, drove 10 hours down to El Paso. And he had written this document previously talking about his concern about the Hispanic invasion of Texas. And he had this AK-47 and he shot and killed 23 Latinos. So that's that's mm-hmm. the background to that. I don't think they were all Latino, uh, just just to correct it, that they weren't all Latino. And 10 hours is 700 miles, and that's, that's a yes. long way. And, you know, the, the, the other important thing uh, to add to that is that um, the day, I think it was the day after or very shortly after it happened, a uh, campaign mailer came from the governor and it's it used some of the same language. Wow. That, you know, about using, I don't think the word invasion, but there was some other language right. about how yeah. it was changing this, the immigrants were changing America, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, that, that caused quite a stir. Yeah. Absolute horrific tragedy and crime. And um, thank you for just sharing with us your insight to it and, and takeaways from your coverage. Uh, and also just a reminder, there were 23 other people who were injured. So it was really the the devastation was widespread and, and that it was at a Walmart where I think of as, you know, just where families go to, you know, enjoy themselves and it was at a Walmart that is known for attracting uh, people from Mexico, that people mm. know as the Walmart to go to because it's right there where it is, its location and it, what it carries, et cetera. And, and sometimes they can get stuff cheaper there than they get in, in Juarez. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I always, that detail always st- struck me as, in my interpretation, it's, I can imagine people feeling like Walmart kind of represents something Mm-hmm. Uh, akin to the American dream is, you know, you can go get affordable things for your family and kind of get this, you know, that slice of, of life. I get, you know, make your house look nicer and buy new things and buy clothes for your kids. And that makes it even that much more sort of heartbreaking that people felt like that could be a safe place to go. And yet, and um, if you can be kind targeted, of that, if you can kind of think of that as sort of like a center of the symbiosis that occurs on the border in these border mm. communities. I mean, it's not like San Diego and Tijuana. San Diego is much further away. I mean, these are right next to each other. And, and what happened was an attempt to sever that symbiosis. You know, if you think about, you know, things in nature that feed, you know, that, that connect are connected, that feed off each other or that assist each other by that symbiosis method. And you just go and you cut through them and they die. I mean, that's, that was, I think, I feel like that was the attempt that was made there. Yeah. So this has yet to go to trial. So, you know, all of this is still kind of affecting people there in El Paso. Oh, well, um, and you'll 
you'll be following up, probably covering that, right? I hope so. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing your coverage. Well, before we go, because we are at, getting close to the end of our show, I did want to pivot and you know, talk a little bit about art and culture. And this is the holiday season. So I wanted to check in with you, Suzanne. And in in this winter time, as we're all settling in, I was wondering, and this doesn't have to be a politically connected answer. <laughs> are there one or two shows or movies that you've watched recently that you've enjoyed or been moved by that you'd like to tell us about? Okay, I'm not just saying this because we're talking about Latinos, but I did recently watch, I watch a lot, too much Netflix, but I did recently watch Hentified, which mm. is- uh, I was wondering. <laughs> and you know what? It's it's funny because I did see the first season and, I, and I, I needed to pick up on the second season. But for me, part of it too was just the touchstones in it that are- mm. Are you know I there's this language way of speaking and they say some things in that are curse words and and I can relate it to seeing it my family do that and there were times where I was just roaring on I was laying down and I was just laughing so hard wow. and you know and it's it's been hard for me to laugh in these times and, mm. and, and I, I was laughing and it felt good because it reminded me of people I know in my family mm. or things that have happened in my family but you know I just loved the theme um, I'm, I'm we've been talking about maybe writing about it, but just this whole idea of responsibility to family versus finding your own identity and, you know, what responsibility family, the sacrifices that you have to make and still how, what they call gentrification or gentrification by Latinos in their own communities still runs through that, that show. I thought it was fantastic. And Steve, you kind of talked about this in the beginning, but one of the things I really admire about the African-American community, even though, you know, we want to see greater presence of people of color in the quote unquote mainstream, the African-American community has done such a good job of of making its own movies, of having its own actors, of producing and mm. and 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 funding and paying, and I I don't I'm not sure that Latinos have done it at the same level. Right. And so this, it's right. nice to see this show um, by America Ferreira, I believe is the. Oh, I love her! I can't wait to check it out. I've heard rave reviews. Now you've definitely I got to put it high on my list. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, the time always goes too fast, and it has again in, in terms of the, the podcast interviews. We really appreciate you taking the time, Suzanne, to be with us. We uh, just say formally, we really appreciate your voice and the media and journalistic world out there. And um, hope you uh, enjoy the holidays. And thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, and I can't wait for your book. Oh, well, I can't wait to finish it. But yeah, so. <laughs> thanks so much, Suzanne. Happy holidays. You too. All right. That's all the time we have for today. And that's all the time we have for this year. As I mentioned, we're going to uh, we'll be off and we won't be have an episode for the second half of December. So allow you more time with your uh, family and loved ones. And looking forward to, the, to next year. We'll be joining you again in January. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. I want to thank again, Suzanne, for joining us on today's podcast. You can follow Suzanne on Twitter at at Gamboa, S-U-Z-G-A-M-B-O-A. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And Democracy Color is now on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy Color. 
If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. We really appreciate that and helps us get the word out more broadly about the podcast. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, happy holidays and keep the faith.